Welcome to Story and Star Wars. I'm Alistair Stevens. In this episode, I'm going to give my initial responses to Solo, a Star Wars movie, which I saw about two hours ago. I haven't, therefore, finalized all of my thoughts. I haven't done the internet deep dive into Easter eggs and trivia, and I haven't, perhaps most importantly, looked at any reviews or criticisms surrounding the movie whatsoever. I'm going to come back in two weeks with a more considered perspective, so consider this just the hottest of internet hot takes. I will, I should say, be spoiling Solo completely over the course of this episode, so if you haven't yet seen the movie, I urge you to go out and watch it. My capsule review is simply this. It is a gorgeous, dynamic, energetic, somewhat misaligned, and perhaps inconsequential part of the Star Wars canon, a compelling action-adventure story that does everything it needs to, though perhaps no more than that, without falling foul of any of the major traps awaiting this kind of backstory expansion. So before we get to the movie itself, a quick history of the production of Solo, in part because it's an interesting story in its own right, and in part because understanding the history may, in this particular instance, give us some insight into the tension within the heart of the movie. This, as regular story and Star Wars listeners will know, is not the kind of criticism I usually undertake. This is a search for an efficient cause, to borrow C.S. Lewis's terminology from his essay on criticism, rather than the formal cause. The formal cause consists of the strengths and weaknesses of the movie, observable on the screen. The performances, the dialogue, the cinematography, the visual effects, the costuming and set dressing, the sound, the score... The efficient cause looks for underlying explanations in the historical and biographical accounts of the creators involved. It's always tempting to go deeper, to try to understand the why. There are entire industries of behind-the-scenes commentaries and documentaries and books and articles and podcasts dedicated to explaining why your favorite movies are the way they are. But the problem is that why is essentially elusive. Let's take a quick example. Jar Jar Binks. Jar Jar goes from being a major part of The Phantom Menace to a minor role in Attack of the Clones to being all but entirely absent from Revenge of the Sith. That, to the dedicated Jar Jar fan, a uh, Binks head, assuming that there are such people out there, is a bad thing about the movie. If you love Jar Jar Binks, then his absence is something to be concerned about or something to be critical of. The formal cause of their dissatisfaction is that there is much less Jar Jar in the second and third movies. The efficient cause, the explanation of why the formal cause is true, is that audiences hated Jar Jar Binks and the studio listened to them. But here's the problem. The formal cause is observable and is objective. Jar Jar Binks is less significant in Clones and Sith than he is in Menace. The efficient cause is necessarily speculative. Yes, audiences seemed to dislike Jar Jar, but there are dozens of other explanations that might account for his diminished roles in the sequels. This was always George Lucas's plan. The original CGI models for Jar Jar were lost or damaged. They were saving him up for a big Sith reveal in The Force Awakens, which never materialized. There was bad blood between the studio and Ahmed Best, the actor who played Jar Jar. That last one, I should be completely clear, isn't true, and I've heard nothing to suggest that it might be. It's just an example of the kind of speculation we might make. Our search for the efficient cause is always going to be fuzzy and imprecise because human beings and creative endeavors are also fuzzy and imprecise, which is why we ought, in general, to be skeptical of attempts to explain the observable, objective facts about pieces of art with accounts of their creation. So, having said all that, 
let's just do the thing that I warned against, shall we? By all accounts, George Lucas was already working on a script for a standalone solo movie before he sold Lucasfilm to Disney in 2012. There are apocryphal stories out there, now clearly non-canonical, about Han growing up on Kashyyyk and befriending Chewbacca very early in his life. There is also the pitch that Lucas devised for the Star Wars Underworld series, in which Solo also would have appeared. But these ideas are not this idea. Lucas hired Lawrence Kasdan, who had, of course, previously written screenplays for Empire and Jedi, that's Return of the Jedi, not The Last Jedi, to write the screenplay for the solo film, too. When Kasdan was hired away to work on The Force Awakens, he passed the script on to his son, Jonathan Kasdan. Is this script for Solo George Lucas's vision, then? Or is it the creation of Kasdan and Son, professional scriptwriters for hire? Different accounts are, of course, circulating on the internet and are often being deployed either in support of the movie, both it's great, it was all Lucas's idea, and it's great because Lucas had nothing to do with it, and in opposition to the movie, it's terrible because it's all Lucas's idea, or it's terrible because Lucas had nothing to do with it. Here's the thing. Lucas was certainly developing a solo movie prior to the Disney buyout, but it's unclear what that means. Did he have an idea, or did he tell Kasdan to go write a solo movie? It seems to be the latter, based on the one objective piece of information we have. The movie credits the screenplay to Lawrence and Jonathan Kasdan and gives Lucas a, quote, based on original characters by credit, rather than a story by credit. My read of that, particularly given the very precise WGA rules regarding credits, suggests that the extent of Lucas's involvement in the underlying narrative of Solo consisted of him saying, hey Larry, go write a Han movie. Parenthetically, I think that we can confirm this through observation of the movie itself, which feels structurally much more like a Kasdan story than a Kasdan treatment for a Lucas story, but that's awfully subjective and a topic to which we will return in a couple of weeks' time. Things only get more complicated from there. Phil Lord and Christopher Miller were originally hired to direct, fresh off the success of the Lego movie. They began principal photography in January of 2017. In June of that year, they left the project, citing creative differences, and directorial duties were given instead to Ron Howard, who was considered, I guess, a safe if uninspired pair of hands. The final shooting scripts contain elements from Lord, Miller, and Howard in addition to the Kasdans. And though Howard's voice isn't terribly distinctive in the final movie, it is very easy, all too easy, to imagine Lego versions of the Star Wars characters reading some of the Lord and Miller lines. Shooting concluded in October of 2017, which means that Lord and Miller helmed five or six of the ten months of principal photography, and then the movie went into editing and post-production. I mention this only because the final movie is, well, here's the thing about Solo. It is simultaneously somewhat pedestrian, somewhat predictable. We tick off the major beats in Han's character arc implied by the original trilogy and do a modest amount of generally conventional world building. It's tightly structured for the first three quarters or so of its running time, and then it flounders in the last act because a great deal of exposition is held back and then has to be delivered all at once. We get the expected sequel hooks, one internal to both Han and our understanding of Star Wars canon, and one a little more surprising. But it's also, simultaneously, weirdly, an incredibly ambitious and sinilliterate piece of filmmaking. I have no idea how much of that came from Lord and Miller, though parts of it are absolutely consistent with their body of work, and how much of it came from Howard, who I can absolutely see in other parts of the story. These fuse together in a really interesting way, but not without a certain amount of internal tension. A tension which squanders the momentum that has been built up through the film's running time right in its final movement. 
Let's break that down then, and gloss the structure of the story. We open with a young Han on Corellia, running scams and getting in trouble on behalf of a local criminal gang. We're introduced to his girlfriend, Kira, and to their plan to escape the slums of Corellia and make their way in the galaxy. This first segment, dominated by the extended chase sequence and ending in the forcible separation of Han and Kira, is well-paced and beautifully shot in several different monochromatic palettes, it is also weirdly evocative of pre-war pulp-inflected New York noir stories. It is no coincidence that in the opening captions, the conspicuous and somewhat half-hearted replacement for the more traditional Star Wars crawl, we use the cliched phrase, mean streets, because Han is absolutely the type of minor hoodlum who would be caught up in petty theft and low-stakes scams in a noir story. Separated from Kira, Han then enrolls in the Imperial Flight Academy, from which we are told he is expelled. We catch up with him three years later on the planet Mimban, where he runs into the crew of Tobias Beckett. This is a hard tonal and aesthetic cut for the film because suddenly we're not in 1930s noir anymore. We've jumped ahead to a 1940s war movie, complete with trench warfare and ubiquitous mud and sudden violent death and confusion and an unknowable future. Here, Han is thrown in a pit with a beast who turns out to be Chewbacca, a nod, of course, to the Rancor, but also one of the movie's more obvious and clearly flagged reveals, and the two work together to escape and join up with Beckett's crew. They go to Vandor, where they are attempting a daring train heist to steal coaxium hyperfuel, but their plans are foiled by the Cloud Riders and their enigmatic leader, Enfys Nest. The heist goes wrong, the coaxium explodes, and we find ourselves deep in another kind of World War II movie, having moved from the line of the war into a Dirty Dozen-style adventure where every character has a particular skill and a particular role to play. You can also see this part of the film if you are so inclined as a classic heist story, but the heist format itself has a lot of shared DNA with those World War II band of brothers mismatched hero kind of stories. We then transition to the introduction of the movie's primary antagonist, Vision, sorry, Dryden Voss, who occupies both a dramatically opulent personal yacht and a gold-infused late 1940s, early 1950s post-war West Coast noir story. Look at the sequence in The Party, the lighting, the costumes, even the music. You can see traces of that bleached L.A. noir seen in movies like Kiss Me Deadly all the way through to L.A. Confidential. To recap then, pre-war noir, war movie, war-adjacent dirty dozen guns of Navarone ensemble-style action-adventure, then a post-war West Coast noir. We've got 30 years of movie history, basically the 30s, 40s, and 50s, represented in the first half of this movie in roughly chronological order, and it is at this point that I start to wonder if someone, probably Ron Howard, given his affection for cinema history and Americana, is playing with a remarkably elaborate structure. Or is this Lord and Miller taking the idea of a backstory to its logical conclusion and anchoring every element of Han's history in the history of his medium? And it doesn't stop there. Voss dispatches the team, now with Kira in tow, to steal unrefined coaxium from Kessel. And all those who predicted that the Kessel run would be a major feature of this movie, pat yourselves on the back. We are introduced to Lando Calrissian with a Sabak game which plays very much like early James Bond. We're undercover, at least in theory. We're dealing with high stakes and the utter confidence of the con man. We're introduced to Lando's droid co-pilot, L337, and we take the Falcon to Castle. We infiltrate the mining facility, the Spice Mine, of course, with hyperfuel just a convenient secondary line of business. And this is where the movie starts to lose its way and starts to feel more like a conventional nod to Star Wars movies of old than to the preceding acts of its own story. 
Infiltrating the mining facility is just too easy, much more like the assault on the Imperial bunker on the forest moon of Andor than the kind of heist we might be expecting at this point. Our heroes steal the coaxium, and Han pilots the Falcon out of the maw around Kessel in, standing ovation, 12 parsecs. This is, as predicted, a partial canonization of the Star Wars Legends explanation for the Kessel Run mistake in the original Star Wars script, and I was glad to see it. We escape to Severine, where the coaxium is refined and the movie's pace slips again. We get the reveal about Emphis Nest and a nod toward the rebellion. We get the double crossing of Dryden Voss, the double double crossing of Tobias Beckett, the double 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 crossing of Kira, all of which feels very West Coast noir again. And then, finally, we get the standoff between Han and Beckett on the cliffs overlooking the ocean, in which Han, for the first, but emphatically not the last time, shoots first. We then get those aforementioned sequel hooks. Kira bringing Darth Maul back into big screen continuity. Han winning the Falcon in a fair, or at least fairer, game of Sabak against Lando. And the final gesture toward Jabba and Tatooine. We jump into hyperspace, and that's our movie. We can squint a little and see the continuity of the referential palette through the back third of the movie. Certainly, there are some associations between L3's liberation of the mining facility, her personal politics, and the civil rights movement, leaning almost into a kind of reference to exploitation cinema of the 1970s, not least of all because L3 is killed for her politically progressive views. But ultimately, and perhaps surprisingly, it's the inclusion of the proto-rebellion which slows the movie the most for me. What has been a relatively high-stakes but still very personal story takes a turn toward the grand, the operatic. Also, we can acknowledge Han's ultimate fate as an on-again, off-again hero of the rebellion. It feels like a concession made to the tone set by Rogue One, the first standalone Star Wars movie. When Enfys rhetorically asks Han at the end if he knows what the coaxium vials contain, I half expected her to say, hope. Which brings us to an important question. What is Solo about? What is the point of this movie? Much of the first half of the film leans on the idea of found family, from the genuinely great scene in which Han is given his last name by a bureaucratic imperial clerk, to the meeting with Chewbacca, the joining of Beckett's crew, but ultimately, Han and Chewbacca are going to be flitting around the galaxy pretty much on their own for the next decade or so. We introduce the idea that we must compromise to survive in a difficult world, but much is made later of Han's underlying moral principle. We talk about betrayal, both explicit and implicit, but ultimately, the movie is more interested in forging a genuine friendship between Han and Chewbacca than it is in isolating our hero and emphasizing how dark and lonely the galaxy can be for those who stand in the shadows. It isn't about uncomplicated heroism, because our heroes are criminals and Han shoots first. It isn't about idealism, because for much of the film, we're only pursuing money, and to a sometimes lesser, sometimes greater extent, the more valuable currency of freedom. And that, to me, is the thematic heart of Solo. Are we free to choose? Are we free to define our own lives? Are we free to escape the mistakes and the debts of the past? Are we free to escape who we really are? These are some of the questions which Solo seems interested in asking, albeit in a remote and casual way. No, the real story of Solo is that of our eponymous hero. This is backstory, yes, but it's a well-observed and beautifully performed character piece. Nothing here changes our understanding of the Star Wars universe, which is why, as I mentioned right at the top of the show, some people might find it disposable or unnecessary or less than utterly diverting. 
but it's a better, more thoughtful and more hopeful perspective on Han's character than we might have expected. His irrepressible enthusiasm isn't at all like the world-weary, self-serving Han that we meet in A New Hope, but it is easy to see how this galaxy can turn a man into that. Speaking of which, let's talk about our cast. Alden Ehrenreich is a likable and irrepressible hero who doesn't give us a Harrison Ford take on Han, but manages to capture nonetheless some of the essence of that character. Donald Glover is, well, Donald Glover, so nothing less than spectacular, taking some obvious inspiration from Billy D. Williams' iconic performance as Lando Calrissian, but evolving it and tempering it beautifully. Emilia Clarke is a little thin and brittle in her performance as Kira, though I'm tempted almost, to credit that to a deliberate choice, echoing the more fragile heroines of 1940s noir. Phoebe Waller-Bridge is exceptional as L3, though I do wish that we'd been given more time with her character and she'd been given a little more complexity before her loss. Paul Bettany gives a conventional but thoroughly competent performance as Dryden Voss, and I would say the same about Woody Harrelson's performance as Beckett, though I am expecting that character to grow on me in subsequent viewing. Jean Favreau was delightful as Rio Durant, a character with an obvious narrative function, but a surprising amount of heart and huge credit should go to Tandy Newton for doing so much more with Val than was written on the page. Overall, the performances range from the completely competent to the excellent. And the same can honestly be said for the rest of the production. This was a fairly expensive movie, coming in at $250 million versus The Last Jedi's estimated $217 million, and a lot of that money can be seen on screen. We should acknowledge, too, those moments when the movie really works as a Star Wars film. The most successful for me is the moment when Han first sees the Millennium Falcon and is obviously taken by it immediately. It's a love-at-first-sight beat that could easily be overplayed, but which works rather beautifully. The infusion of L3's personality into the Falcon is a lovely beat, too, echoing C-3PO's observation in Empire that the Falcon has a let's say, a unique mode of address. Seeing Sabak played on screen is wonderful for those of us who have loved the Star Wars Expanded Universe fandom for many years. The loss of the Falcon's escape pod and the return of the ship's iconic silhouette was also a great moment. The absence of the Force from this movie gives us a much more grounded, human-scale perspective on what life in the Star Wars universe must really be like, and that, now more than ever, is necessary. There are moments, too, which don't work so well. The Lovecraftian space crack in which the Falcon encounters at the Maw is spectacular, but also broadly incomprehensible, echoing the Exegorth from Empire, but taken to an excessive extreme. I don't love the droid fight club sequence, mostly because between that and L3's political perspective, we're again approaching a story that I don't believe the Star Wars movies have any intention of telling, that of droid sentience, liberty, and civil rights. It's played here as a reference, as something perilously close to a joke, but it is, and has been, arguably since A New Hope, much too important to be dispensed with so lightly. In the end, then, Solo is an enjoyable action-adventure romp that definitely stumbles in its last moment, but at least the underlying intent is good. Ironically, it might have been a better film if it had been slightly less committed to being a Star Wars film. But that's a problem that's going to be a constant challenge for the standalone anthology titles. Right now, the internet is speculating about both an Obi-Wan movie and a Boba Fett movie, the former of which strikes me as a great idea, and the latter somewhat less so. This movie excels when it is not about the Empire or the Rebellion or even the clash of good and evil, but rather remains focused on character. When it tries to get larger, it becomes quickly untethered. 
I didn't, I must confess, enjoy or admire this movie as much as I did Rogue One. But it shares one very important quality with that film, arguably the most important quality. I suspect that when I return to A New Hope, which, confession, I plan on doing the moment I am finished recording this podcast, I will enjoy it even more in the light of Solo. My new understanding of the man Han Solo was and has become of his relationship with Chewbacca and to a greater extent the Falcon and the danger of getting caught up in politics and principle. As I said, the movie hooks us for a sequel, but I'm wary of the diminishing returns that can be gained from mining the next chapter of Han's life. We're getting perilously close to the backstory of his vest and his Corellian bloodstripes and the explanation of every incidental nick and scar on the hull of the Falcon. But for all that this movie is ultimately unnecessary to the broader movement of the Star Wars story, it was a fun ride for fans old and new. So this show is a little shorter than most episodes of Story and Star Wars because, well, I really need to see the film again if I'm going to understand it and talk in a more informed way about it, and we will circle back around to that in two weeks' time. But as compensation, I'm going to be back next week with some more thoughts on The Last Jedi, some listener correspondence, and some analysis of what we actually learned about the Force in the most recent numbered episode. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have thoughts about Solo, about The Last Jedi, or about any other aspect of the Star Wars universe, then please get in touch by emailing pointnorthmedia at gmail.com. That will do it for this time. It's time to go and watch A New Hope once more, but I will talk to you all again soon. Until then, may the Force be with you. Be with you.